This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. I have a really important question for you. Okay. How do you feel about bagels? I love bagels. Okay. Have you ever seen a bagel slicer? I have. Like, you know, the kind that has like a little triangle blade and you push it down into the slot and it cuts the bagel? They also sell toasters that have built-in bagel slicers in the bagel with toaster. I've not seen that. I think you have to be Jewish to know about it. Okay. Well, maybe you can. Now I'm in. I'm in so I'm not even Jewish. <laughs> but there's a, uh, there's a guy that I'm working with now at the client whose father invented that bagel slicer. Really? Yeah. So he must have like a bagel slicing... Uh, fortune or that's, something that's what i thought but i guess he just you know he that's what he did he just worked on pats that's what he did and mm. i asked i was like you know personally i just prefer to cut my bagels with a bread knife because it's way easier that way yes <laughs> and uh he said yeah that's how his dad does it too so there you go Fr- straight Ooh. from the inventor of the bagel slicer <laughs> hot take on the bike shed <laughs> the bagel slicers out use a bread knife <laughs> What have you been uh, up to? Oh, you know, we have news. We have, we have news. We haven't been on. We, I don't think we've recorded since we both found out that we'll be speaking at RailsConf. Oh, yes. We'll so, speak at RailsConf. Yeah. I'm going to talk about um, code reviews and how to do them well and the type of culture they create when you do them well. And what are you talking about? I'm going to be talking about the Attributes API and the process that went into designing it. Great. So um, if you're going to RailsConf, look for Sean and I. We're going to try and record a few live episodes. We have Tom, our producer, is coming down with us, and he's trying to set up a room so maybe we can do some live recording there. So that'll be fun. Look for us there. So what have you been up to this week? Uh, So I'm starting a new Android project, and as it turns out, the entirety of everything related to tooling on the JVM is still completely broken and mobile developers still don't care about testing as much as they should just in case you were worried that that changed and our understanding of the world needed to go away. I, I mean, I don't understand it from the... I, I only hear what I hear our iOS team talking about is that like they're frustrated that there's no real good high-level testing framework for like walking through your app. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about or is it more, is it worse than that? No, actually in Android, we've got a really good integration testing framework so that's not the issue, but when you've got, first of all, the compiled language and you have to worry about class paths and you have to worry about compile time class paths that are just used to verify type signatures and whatnot versus runtime class paths where it actually loads all that into memory because Android's huge, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't compile against the actual Android framework. Um, in Objective-C, they have header files, which solves this problem, but we don't have header files in Java. So what they do is they provide a jar file that has all of the public um, API classes like there with all of the methods with the correct type signature, and then the bodies just throw new exception stub. But so you sometimes need Android uh, for co- compiling but not always. And you definitely want to make sure that's only a compile time dependency. And then your integration tests will run on an actual device. And that's really slow. Run on, it'll run on an actual phone, like not in the simulator? That kind I of mean, thing? you can run it on a simulator if you want, but like a simulator is 
like being an, it just needs to be something that is as far as the tool chain can see is an actual device because Android the emulator just it's not treated any differently than a real than a real device would be and then you'll have dependencies that you'll want just for your really ridiculously slow tests that are going to run on the device but then you'll probably want a second set of tests that are your unit tests for stuff that don't interact with the framework and those will have a completely different set of dependencies, but they still need to depend on your main code, but your main co- but need to not require Android for compilation. And so all of this requires a pretty complicated dependency setup, which it actually looks like the Android tooling now finally is having good support for. But at the same time, the, the build tools, some of the public APIs changed in major non-backwards compatible ways. So all of the other plugins that interact with those then stopped working. So it's painful times is what you're telling me. Yes. It, sounds, it doesn't sound too dissimilar from like Rails 2 testing days, right? Like where, sure. you know, if you wanted to use RSpec in Rails 2, then every time something happened in Rails, like your, your test suite was broken if you wanted to upgrade. Um, so yeah, every time you wanted to, every time you wanted to update like Rails, then our, all of a sudden our specs broken, right? And you have to decide between whether or not you want to be on the latest and greatest, or you want your test suite working, <laughs> right? Um, so well, and then in uh, in Android we have another problem, which is that older versions of the VM can't handle more than uh, short maxval methods, like total for an application. Which to- like total methods and like yeah. the me- the count of methods, right? Okay. In 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 the the program file, okay, that all, all has to get loaded into memory. It can only handle a total of short maxval, okay. Which is much more of a problem if you're writing your application in Scala or if you're just using large libraries. Um, you can actually get to get to that number pretty quickly in Java if you're using something like Apache Commons or just something that has you know tens of thousands of methods. And then the Scala the Scala standard library and core library is like fifteen thousand, I think, something like that. And so now there's it, it's it's getting a lot better. It used to be the only option was to use a program called ProGuard, which looks at your compiled class files after you compile them and analyzes what's ever actually used. Except it, that's not a perfect system and you have to have special configuration to tell it first of all here are the classes that from your point of view are never used but i know for a fact anything that subclasses activity for example is going to be used so that you need to keep and then keep anything that it depends on but things that are relied on via reflection or whatever wouldn't get picked up as being used and then your tests which are compiled separately you might have certain code or certain dependencies that are used in tests but aren't used in production. Like, for example, on Marshall Codex, one of the ones that we ran into a lot was we were using um, the Mutable Collections API to store results of some asynchronous stuff, which we're never using any Mutable Collections in the actual code, and so it drops all of the Mutable Collections when ProGuard got run. And So configuring that was always a pain in the ass. And there's a new thing called multidexing, which can be supportive natively in the application on 5.0 and later, and there's a polyfill for 4.0 and later, but it makes everything a lot slower, except apparently the new tools are faster, but nothing supports the new tools, so... So you're in this in-between state where you need to kind of wait for things to catch up to the new tools, sounds like? Right. Every few months when I start a new Android project, I go look at alternatives to all the things that were painful and go look at updates to everything, and everything's gotten slightly better and then completely broken in a completely different way. (laughs) 
you have to learn new edge cases to work around yes but like what what you're talking about doesn't sound like those problems are specific to android but they're problems that like like i don't know like all the way back to like oh there can be a maximum number of methods right that's like that's reminiscent of problems that we have in web development where you have like not anymore but where you had like a maximum number of selectors in internet explorer or uh and you just had to know about that that kind of thing and there were tools that could help you with that and then the the talking about like ProGuard running and stripping out things you're not using like and you have to like instruct it like oh no no wait i'm really using that is like kind of like mangling and compressing your javascript right yeah well and it does obfuscate as well that's the other thing it does right because you don't want anybody reverse engineering your uh android your 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 enterprise well ProGuard's not an android tool it's like all of this is certain problems are, are android specific but a lot of the tooling problems are actually just in general problems with jvm tooling like like tooling tools build <laughs> systems <laughs> right <laughs> and dependency management sounds like um is yes. kind of a hell they should talk to npm they fix that so <laughs> yes another one <laughs> um yeah. yeah so lately i've been just working on that same service oriented mess that uh we've been talking about in ruby and, yep in ruby and um we're starting to make some progress. We killed off an app today. It was the first time. So we Ooh. went from seven to six. So that's good, taking small steps. And I started thinking about, like, I'm doing a lot of refactoring work right now. And it's super hard to try and stay in the I'm only refactoring mindset, right? Um, every little thing I'm uncovering, I find like, oh, but I could just, this could just be, like, from text on the page to, like, everything, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know where I'm trying to go with that, really. But, but that that was my my current um, thing. Like just before I was coming down here, it was like we're porting um, their sales funnel is what they call it. It's basically a wizard that you go through to set up this campaign on the website, and um, porting that over to it was it was this gigantic Rails controller that's like thousands of lines long with everything happening and like m- most of what you actually care about happening happens in before filters, and so you're chasing this thing all over the page. And so we're breaking that out into several controllers and along the way, kind of like giving it a little bit of a design refresh, but not trying not to change the functionality. And I've had a really hard time trying to keep like my opinions on what the functionality should be to like a later time. Like, no, we've got to get it over on this new architecture. Then we can start. Oh, what if we did, you know, what if, what if we just architected it a little bit differently? What if we just like got rid of this field and this field and combined them into this other field? Isn't that so much simpler? Um, so I think that's, that takes like a, I don't, I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's really like Joe and I were working on it together. Joe Ferris, our CTOs on the project for a couple of days a week for the last couple of weeks. We were working on it together. And if not for him sitting right there, I think I would have gotten much further down in the weeds. And in fact, like I was, wor- <laughs> I was working on it by myself for a good amount of time like i was working on this ref- i started this refactoring by myself and when he came over he was like well why are you also changing this and i was like well because it was stupid and this is better like <laughs> <laughs> you know and so we kind of had to yeah. unwind unwind some of those things and distance ourselves from some of that so i guess my advice is like pairing in those situations can totally keep you sane and try and keep you focused so yeah um, I mean, it's unsimilar to when i find some obscure feature in active record and I'm like, crap, this ruins all of the refactoring that I'm doing because now I see why the code was written in this crappy way and it's only to support this crappy feature that was not well thought out. And on this new architecture, we can come up with a way better feature. But then I'll get hate mail. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. You want to go fast, right? You want to be like, oh, let's delete all this old stuff and let's let's move on to the new stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's it takes it certainly takes a special and like there are people at Thoughtbot here who like really only want to work on greenfield projects, right? And that's like the allure of being a consultant to them is that we get a lot of greenfield projects. And there are people who are consultants that really love doing the refactoring. And so I don't know where I am. Like I think some days I really do really love improving a code base from something that appears to be insur almost insurmountable and just taking small steps and like trying to tell yourself at the end to like take a big picture look. Like from from day to day, you can feel like you're not making a bunch of much progress. But if you really take the time to look back at like where you were a month ago or two months ago, you start to see some pro some um, progress. And yes, I just like that that has its its benefits too so I, I i guess what i'm saying is i enjoy them both it just they just take totally different disciplines i think i agree with that i mean if you, i think if you just do greenfield that can get boring pretty quickly because when you see like the big ugly code base it's not i mean there are some code bases where it's just like the person didn't care about writing decent code and it's ugly for that reason but like a lot of times it's just naturally grown into a monster by dealing with complicated problems but I feel like most of the more interesting stuff doesn't come in the first three or four months. Yeah. And this this project certainly had a lot of like, when I first came on, it was like, we need this one feature in this you know, dashboard area that needs to be implemented. And I implemented those and I was like, okay, you know, that was harder than it needed to be because of these various problems that we've talked about on the show, architectural issues. But, you know, so I suggested like, we can improve this architecture while we also make progress on these features over here. And then, so that was, you know, a couple months in and then we brought on some people to the project and we're looking at it again and we're trying to make some, like, again, like they wanted to change how login works on the site. It currently works with an iframed, it's, it, there's iframes involved and Ajax and then the <laughs> iframe gets closed and things happen. It's really hard to explain and it's not how you would build a login if you were building it from scratch today. So we thought like, okay, great, we can fix this, no problem. And we set out and it just, again, one of those journeys where you're like, um... What happened to the sessions? Where are the sessions? <laughs> People are not like everybody's got like, everybody's logged out. Why is this happening? And that turned out to be totally unrelated to the work we were doing, and was just because the session store was memcache and it was filling up. Oh. Right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, that was a giant runaround. And then it was then you know we make a little more progress on the login and we push it out and we're doing like some small testing and we're like, why am I not able to like. I have a login here and then I go over to this other application, which is on another server and I don't have a login here. What's going on? And turns out those two different memcache servers, right? <laughs> like they're not even <laughs> They just don't share sessions at all, even though you think they will. Um, right. So like just various things like that let us down the, okay, now we're at the point where it's like, we can't, I don't think we can make reasonable feature progress and we really need to, like, even though I was looking forward to like, we'll implement new features and improve as we go along, the approach actually needs to be we need to go really slowly and focus on quality. Anything anything new that gets introduced has to be of the utmost importance and the utmost quality. And right. then the old stuff you just kind of have to keep chipping away at for a little while till you get to a point where you're stable. And that's that's what we're working on. Like I said, we're working on login, sales funnel stuff. I've had a lot of exposure to Devise lately, mm -hmm. <laughs> which as the clearance maintainer, like there's been... Uh, so Devise is another, if you're not familiar with it, Devise is another username and password authentication really just authentication library. Like it aims to do a lot more than clearance does. Right. And it's by far the most popular to use in Rails. And there's been several times maintaining clearance where I'm like, why Why are we maintaining clearance? Like device is so much more popular and people just use it. And there's like, you can Google for it and find like how to do anything you want to do, right? Because everybody's using it. And mm -hmm. then 
all of my interaction with device recently has been like more of a boon to like my like yes we definitely need to keep maintaining clearance <laughs> like various yeah. various things about it like having to define the types of things that you're signing in via a helper in your route so you have to like say devise for users and if you don't say that you don't get a users you don't get a current user method like that kind of thing so that's just, weird yeah like you can't there's no configure like it's not a configuration where you say like i expect to sign in users here you actually have to say in your in your routes file you say devise for users and now that that's what sets up the fact that you have a current user and you have you know signed in user signed in user signed out like hmm. that type of thing. And then like device supports like signing in as a user, signing in as an account, signing in as a, all these other things. It's like, well, I, I mean, I guess maybe that helps some people. But well, I think that that's the, the tricky thing too, though, right? Because clearance is definitely way easier to use if you have a specific authentication need. Right. And the specific thing that clearance is really good for is pretty much what every app is going to need going out the gate. Mm-hmm. And then clearance stops being the greatest option when you need to really do something funky and have it be super duper configurable and handle anything. But then it's really hard to switch from clearance to devise when at the point that devise becomes a better option. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I know that devise and clearance both ninety percent sure by default use bcrypt for passwords. So you like if all you had were users and you wanted to switch back to devise, you could do that. But like even my experience with Devise has been such that like I know a lot of work goes into that project and I really don't like talking badly about people's projects. Uh, it's not, you know, they and it, a lot of people clearly do like, but for me, like I don't, I think if I had those advanced needs, I'd be looking at something else. Like I'm trying to think of what those needs would be. Like if you're actually trying to authenticate with like other services instead of having your own user store or something like that, I'd look for something a little more simple. Just from a Devise perspective, like I just kept having to jump in and be like, oh, what's this method doing? And then it right. turns out it's actually like you can't find it in the source. You have to like, you know, bind.pry and show source because it's a, it's a metaprogrammed method, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, I think the things that clear that device can handle out the door a lot easier than clearance can are the kinds of things that we've actively chosen not to support, like email confirmation or tracking, you know, restricting sign in to a single machine, stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, certainly. That's, that's certainly the case. And we're trying, that's the thing, that's what I'm trying to focus on is like, I want clearance to be opinionated about the the way that like user sign-ins should happen and make it easier for like easy to implement, but also a pleasure for your users to use. Right. But I also don't want to get in the way. And I think right now we do kind of stand in the way of like, well, I don't want my sessions remembered all the time. I want to be able to check this remember me box. Right. And, you know, if that's checked, then, you know, they get a rememberable session. If not, then, you know, it's just a, it's just good for the browser session. Um, so like those types of things you can do in clearance and we've made improvements there, but I want to make that stuff a lot easier. And then on the other side of the coin is like simple form. So that's another thing. It's made by the same company, I believe, right? Yeah, Pla- it's platform, attack. platform attack. Right. So we introduced that because we had a lot of markup in the forms that was duplicated and it wasn't particularly handling like how do you handle errors on this field in a consistent manner? And we we're like, you know, it'd be really nice to have simple form. And simple form is getting it set up to especially if you're starting on a you're, you have a project that like you need you've already have all these forms and you want it to meet your exact markup you're already doing you have to get in there and you configure these wrappers that tell simple form how you want your forms output and those are so frustrating to configure the experience up front is really really i mean there's just no way to say it it's it's pretty miserable but if you take the default configuration 
and you just run with it and you say like this is what my forms look like and i'm going to write some css to make them look like the way i want because the default configuration actually outputs you forms that are like markup that you are is, is pretty flexible and you can do basically what you want to do with it right um so we en we ended up kind of splitting the difference and being like well we'll take mostly what it does by default we'll tweak it where we have to to like make it kind of easier to style to fit what we're doing and there was a lot of upfront work to get that done but now that that's done being able to go through these these pages of the wizard that i was talking about earlier and just be like f dot input this field f dot input that field and know mm -hmm. that the errors and that's where know that like errors are going to get handled and if there's hints we can render those and placeholders and everything comes from like a canonical place on i18n well and, and when when worse comes to worse it also inherits from the rails form builder so you can always just fall back to putting some markup there and structuring it yourself because all the building blocks are still available to you separately right and it's like i feel like that was the experience of that was like frustrating to get set up but then once it was set up i was so thankful to have it and i can't think of a better alternative to it really like right. especially just like the rails form builder works out of the box for simple needs and then as, as soon as you have a lot of forms or you need like you know, to handle the case where you want to automatically, like if there's an error on this field, put a class here and show this, like that type of thing is not the kind of thing that the Rails form builder is good at. So no, definitely, you know, I don't know. Those were just my, the the two libraries I've been interfacing mostly within the last couple of weeks and like devise sent me like back to clearance and simple form was maddening to get set up. But Joe was like, you know, the simple part of simple form is not the library itself or the DSL. The simple part of <laughs> simple form is your forms when you're done setting that up. Right. Right. So it was a lot of work up front, but I think we're going to get a lot of wins out of that. So that's mostly what I've been tied up with, I guess. <laughs> well, actually, we could, I've got. Do you want to keep talking about forms? Because we can talk about forms. I'd I've love. I'd love to keep talking about forms if you have ideas. Like we talked about, like why is the Rails form builder, particularly errors, right? That's something that like the Rails form builder. Like why wouldn't that? Why wouldn't that do that? And then. I talked about like a number of years ago, I opened up a pull request that would like let the Rails form builder support placeholders by through IE10N by convention. Like if there's a placeholder mm -hmm. there in the IE10N, just throw it in there. And that was closed because it was like, oh, we have all these other form builders that do this already, like just use simple form, that kind of thing. And I was like, well, forms seem to be the one place where like Rails is content to let, like simple form is basically what people turn to, I feel like. I, well, I agree, except, you know, a lot of people would say the same thing for devise. As mm -hmm. opposed to like has secure password, the Rails form builder can definitely be enough. Like I know of an app, not naming any names, but that I know for a fact is is just using the Rails form builder and not simple form. And if they ever in a million years felt like the Rails form builder wasn't sufficient to build an application with, there would be lots of changes happening to the Rails form builder. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But. I think the direction that's most interesting isn't so much the form builder, but the object that you pass to it, and that works with the forms. Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about form objects a little bit in the past, but like when you get into other languages, they all have like completely different takes on forms, which are always very interesting to me. Like in Scala Play, there's not really an ORM, and the form object is what's is what's responsible for validations. So you define how the properties of this object map to form inputs and then what validations exist on the form inputs, uh, which when possible will also automatically generate the appropriate HTML client-side validation attributes on the, on the form tags. 
uh, or on the input tags, and then when the data comes back in, you pass the request body back to this form object, and then it's responsible for returning either the data structure it was representing originally or a map of form errors. Right. Or then, like, you've got Yasod, which applies type safety to the URL, which just gets ridiculous because, um, like, it, you don't just create the form tag and you don't just give it a URL. You have to give it a route inside of Yasod, and then it's able to verify that that route exists, and then it's also able to verify that the content types that will be generated by every single one of the inputs matches the expected inputs of that, of that route. What's the practical, like, implication of that? When would that not be the case, I guess? I mean, when you have a typo. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> when you're doing params user mail instead of email, or you accidentally have a number field instead of an email but field. What does that have to do or, with the route, though? Well, it knows what inputs in the request body the route's going to be looking for, or the action at that route's going to be looking for. Okay, so it right. knows yep. that's looking for a certain structure. Okay, right. Pat can, I'm, I'm sure, talk in more detail <laughs> than I can because I'm only loosely familiar with it. Mm hmm. And then, like, Django has uh, something similar to Scala Play, where it's, it's the same thing. The, the form object is what's responsible for validations. And so then it's the object that you pass to, into the templates that generates the input tags, and it's the thing you pass the data back into, and then that builds your data model out of that. But the validations all happen there, not going to the database. And then in everything that isn't Rails, I feel like, Anything that's data integrity type validations and not like sanitizing user input type validations always 100% of the time have zero support in the framework and it's just make a constraint at the database level. Right. But how does that, how do, like, so if, is that like what Scala would do, right? Yeah. So how, how do you handle like messaging when you get back a, like, let's say there's a validation for, I don't know, uniqueness on a user ID on a table or something like that? Right. So how do you so you you let the database handle that? Does it gracefully handle and like the error that comes back from that validation so that you can display that to the user and be like, this user's already in this group or I don't know, whatever the Probably. whatever you're doing. Probably not. Yeah, that's but... a, that's always been the thing for me, like when I because I do feel like I want at this point, like the more I the more and more I deal with this, like I don't want my active record models doing most validations like i'd much prefer the database to do the stuff that is required for data integrity and then i want another object i want these form objects to be doing handling like user facing stuff right name can't be blank right i want that and i'm coming up coming up against that on this project like i talked about that wizard that multi-step wizard deals with the same object all along right so you're, you're still working on the same object from the database all along the validations at any one point are contextual. So if you're at this step of the sales funnel, you have these validation rules applied. If you're at right. the next step, you don't want the previous step because there's nothing the user can do about them if they're invalid at this point because they're looking at a form that doesn't have those fields on them. Right. So like the contextual validation thing in Rails kind of gets pretty ugly. You can either you can have like a state field on the thing that the validations are only applicable if the object's in this state or the route that this project took is um, the controller decorates the object with a bunch of validations, which I think is actually reasonable. I think it's what we'll probably, for the sake of having the smallest change, probably pursue rather than having to write a form object. Like, that's pretty close to a form object, mm -hmm. um, but without having to write a form object for something like that. And I would love to see, like, do you have ideas on what you think a form object could look like in Rails, like a, an officially supported form object kind of thing? 
Uh, I mean, I feel like there's the parts that are obvious, like the fact that it will include active model validations mm-hmm. and that you will be able to read the attributes one for one of what your inputs are going to be, which may or may not map to one to one with the attributes of an active record model. The things that are then less obvious is I think that the form object should be able to really nicely support persist. Basically, first of all, every case that accepts nested attributes for would ever be used for. Right. So why do we want? We I don't know. Have we expanded on why we don't like accepts nested attributes before? Uh, we can. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess if there's somebody listening who doesn't, who you know, is sitting there saying like, what's wrong with accepts nested attributes for? It gives a lot of behavior that you have absolutely no control over, and it will work very, very nicely in this one very, very simple case. And then as soon as you need any control over what attributes get assigned to where. If you want to delete or update existing records instead of creating new ones and you want that to work consistently, because uh, the way you destroy it is not by not having it present in the attributes. It still needs to be there, but you need to put underscore destroy equals one. Right. Except if you then ever submit it with some of the records uh, not in the array that you're passing to it. I don't remember what the specific thing we do is, but it's very. I remember it being in- incredibly funky and not a thing that you right. would expect. There's like the you have to say like oh allow destroy, and then you say like oh reject blank. Like if they didn't fill this out, then you then don't do this. Yeah. And so the API gets pretty big pretty quickly, and they tend to be like where you have one accepts nested attributes for. <laughs> they tend to cluster. You're like oh I've sure. got this one object that has all these associations. I want to do it on one form, and so you very seldom see one accepts nested attributes for. Is my experience. You see like four of them on the same form. Right. And, I think it, I think it can work decently for a has one. Mm-hmm. Yep. But even then, ultimately, accepts nested attributes for is kind of the wrong abstraction because you're more, it's more like you're modifying a sibling than you're modifying children. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then that's the other thing I think that the, a form object needs to support well is the mapping of multiple active record objects that might not actually be related at all, that you might have selected in some completely arbitrary way that wouldn't be visible to this thing as, as something as straightforward as a, uh, an association. Like, I don't know, the current user and then that user's active organization's last authored post by a guest. <laughs> you, you go, I mean, like some right. really arbitrarily complicated thing where you just have these two objects and you need to be able to map properties to them individually but not necessarily know about how the association happens and then save over all save all of them have good support for transactions and potentially nesting transactions composing other form objects would be very nice so that you have reusability how would you nest a transaction what do you what would you mean by that so if it's less it's less that you want to be able to nest transactions and more that so if i've got form object a that works with three objects but one of those objects is another form object that consists of three objects. And they both want to ensure that they have a transaction for saving all of them. The inner form object still needs to, as far as it knows, be operating inside of a transaction. And then the reason that you want to fake nesting them or have them actually be nested where you have a transaction within a transaction is if there's after commit callbacks at any point in that, cha- in that chain, if you save record one and then a new transaction and then record two, three, and four, end that transaction and then save record five, you want the after commit callbacks for two, three, and four to have run before five gets saved. And then you want one and five to have their after commit callbacks run after the full the real transaction commits. 
Hmm. Do you want the after commit callbacks to be run? <laughs> I don't want the after commit callbacks. <laughs> yeah, uh, me either. But there, there, there's legitimate use cases yeah, like yeah. internally. Uh, like one of the things that we're doing is batching up touch calls. Yep, saw that one. Which actually, I'm pretty sure is just a smell of they've got their user model set up. So an after commit, it's user dot comments dot each dot touch or ampersand colon touch. Right. So it, you know, if you update your name, then everywhere your name, everywhere you have comments on the site, they can right. expire that cache. That kind of thing. And we've run into that before. I think we had that conversation here before. Right, but and we swapped it around. We just, whenever we needed to display the user, we made that part of the cache key. Right. Which I feel like is the correct way to do it. But, <laughs> um, Like we said, I've been coming, I think that API sounds really good. And I think if you couple that with take those validations off of the base objects that you're representing, put them on those form objects. If there's several form objects that need to share them, then you know, write them in a shareable way that you can compose these things with, like, use the validations from this object, rather. Um, that kind of thing. And then the last, so then you then you don't have to handle what is my least favorite part of writing form objects is, like, how do I handle errors that bubble up from the base object, right? right. You don't have to handle that anymore because all your errors are on your form object itself. You don't have to promote them and figure out where you're going to display them on the form because the object is your form. Right. So that would make more sense. And the last piece that then becomes difficult is how do you handle when the database is not happy with a record because right now the way you typically do it is if you're being thorough whatever validations you put on your model you back them up with the same type of constraint at your database right um so if you have a presence validation you have no false in the database right. if you have a uniqueness validation you have a you have a um, unique index on the database and if you don't if if you don't like a uniqueness index, a uniqueness constraint is not a user facing validation, really. So you wouldn't think to put that on There's the one form case, object, right? Okay, go ahead. You, I mean, well, because yeah, like an average application might have three or four unique indexes. There should really only be one place that you have a uniqueness validation, and that's like user registration. Sure, right. This user's already signed up. But like you're saying, yeah, the majority of the time they have a unique index. It is not a user facing error. If the constraint ever failed, there it would not be something the user could recover from. But it might be, right? So it might, it could be like you, so let's like think of an application where you have a, a roster and you're adding people to a roster for your team or something like that, right? And you have the same person on the team twice, right? So the or data- just don't have a UI where that's possible. Right, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other case is like, and then if you're screwing around with it, then, you know, and you get some weird error from the database, then congratulations. So yeah, I mean, maybe that's more work, more UI work. Well, and the issue is it's really hard to actually generically handle something like the failure of a uniqueness constraint from the database because as far as we're seeing, it's just an invalid statement. Right. And so we don't get, depending on the database backend, we might get more information than that, but it might just be we would have to parse the error message to figure out. Like I know in Postgres, I think the error that comes back says that there's a uniqueness constraint validation. It might not say, it might not be easily discernible which uniqueness constraint was validated right but, <laughs> but ideally we'd get back an object with an error code that specifically gives us that information because parsing error messages yeah. doesn't feel like <laughs> it's ever a good path no then the adapter updates and oh yeah we're back in update hell yeah i don't know every time i try these form objects it doesn't i'm, I'm left a little like wanting i think that moving to a situation where we don't put any validations and we always on the base active record models and we always use a form object would be an interesting experiment to run on the next greenfield project i'm on so i'd be i might give that a shot if that ever happens again (laughs) yeah and then i think it opens up interesting paths that we can take on the client side or on the form builder side i mean 
Oh yeah, we talked about this from form builders. Yeah. <laughs> because then you're passing an object that's specifically designed to be built to to build a form, basically. Right. And so then like the way simple form infers what the type is of the input becomes much less like it can just do that because there's an object that's made to do that and not have to do all kinds of magic looking at internals of things. Yeah, I really I do like the the magic looking at internals of things, especially for like required attributes where it does like it'll put the required marker on a field if it's required. So it, it reflects on the object to figure out, right, does this have a presence validation, basically. Um, so and then ultimately, like that all can still happen. But we've just structured we've we now structured the contract between these two objects that when you do validates presence of it actually specifically create modify some input object internally. To know that it's required. It's something that you're expected to do, not something that like, oh, look, I can reflect on this object, <laughs> dig down through here, and right. then see, yep, there's a validation here. Like, where is it? That's kind of a happy accident if it were part of the design of the object. It'd be easier. And you can do more interesting things if you think about things that way. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. Should we just wrap up? I mean, we've been going for probably about 40 minutes. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 11. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other episodes, you can get in touch with us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. You can tweet at us at at underscore bikeshed. You can leave comments at bikeshed.fm. Slash 11. Slash 11. Or any other episode. Send up a smoke signal. Whatever you want to do. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. All right.